0: Hey. Ella. And I'm just jumping on here before we get started with our episode and my interview with Maddie Elberger, which is absolutely intense and insightful. And I hope you get as much out of it as I did. But I've been really interested in a subject called DBT, which is dialectical behavioral therapy. And it's an offshoot of CBT, you may have heard of that, which is cognitive behavioral therapy. And I just want you to know, in this episode, we start off with what DBT is and Maddie's expertise and some of the key tenets of DBT. But then we get into real-world examples, everything from over-drinking or under-exercising or, in my case, under-producing or, honestly, avoiding the work I know I should be doing. Actually, let me rephrase that based because I'm I'm on post-episode with Maddie as I record this with you. Not things I should be doing, things I could be doing and I'm not even though I want to be. So just know that after we set the table with the foundation of what DBT is, we use some real life examples based on my conversations with you and examples from my own life. This topic is so deep and so rich that it's one of those episodes I encourage you to listen to it twice. Almost every single word that Maddie says matters, like has weight to it, has real insight to it, and I think you'll get something out of it if you listen to it a second time. I know I will. All right. Let me know what questions you have because this is DBT 101, and I assure you there will be DBT 102 based on your questions. All right. Here's Maddie. Hey, you're on air with Ella, and today I am joined by Maddie Elberger. Maddie, how are you?
1: Great. Thanks for having me on. How are you?
0: I'm great. Where are you today?
1: I am in New York City. I just got home from Tel Aviv, Israel, so glad to be on the same time zone as you.
0: I cannot even fathom where you're finding the energy to talk to me on a Tuesday when you landed from Israel on Monday.
1: All in a day is work. What can I (laughs) say? (laughs)
0: Um, Thank you for what you're doing over there. And if you followed Maddie Elberger on social, you can follow some of the work that she's doing in Israel for the Israeli people. And Maddie, thank you for that. Today, I want to talk to you about something that you're becoming quite known for in this industry. And I find it utterly fascinating. And Maddie, we've never spoken about it before. And that is the art and the science that is DB. T. Dialectical Behavioral Therapy. Am I saying that right?
1: (laughs) Absolutely are. Nice job.
0: Okay. Before we jump in, Maddie, would you tell everybody who you are and what you do?
1: I am a therapist in New York City. I have a private practice known as Downtown Behavioral Wellness. We are actually hiring right now. I have been providing DBT and CBT, predominantly DBT, for the last nine years to pretty much anyone who needs it. That's me. I also am an adjunct lecturer from time to time at Columbia. That's me
0: will you tell everybody what dbt is and i believe it was given birth to it's part of the tree it's a branch on the tree of cognitive behavioral therapy maybe uh, which we refer to as cbt but can you tell us more about what dbt is
1: maddie absolutely so Dialectical Behavior Therapy was created in 1993 by Marsha Linehan. I like to say that just because, like, she deserves all the kudos. She's great. And it is a cognitively, cognitive behaviorally based treatment for impulsive behaviors and extreme mood dysregulation. Now, that's usually associated or traditionally associated with borderline personality disorder, which up until Marsha had created this treatment was not really well Uh, effectively treated, unfortunately. And it has since been normed based on research for anxiety, depression, substance use, eating disorders. There is a version for PTSD, which is absolutely incredible. I'm also trained in. And so basically, DBT offers you a roadmap of skills to be able to learn to acknowledge, accept, and moderate your emotions so that you can function in the way that you'd like to. And what, what we say in DBT is build a life worth living
0: one of the ways that you crystallized this for me that i thought was so beautifully simple was that cognitive behavioral therapy really focuses on thoughts right and addressing i suppose where they came from and i, I, I won't i won't go into detail i'm going to run out of intelligent things to say about it real fast however if cbt focuses on thoughts dbt focuses more on behavior is that fair that's yeah, 100% true so
1: We say that DBT is a big B, little c treatment. So it's behavior first, thoughts and and affect regulation or emotion regulation come after that. And it's the idea for people who experience really big emotions, like really severe emotion dysregulation or personality disorder or whatever, whatever it might be. Changing your thoughts is actually really hard and can get really frustrating. So folks who have been in traditional therapy, traditional really good CBT, like really good CBT, will often feel really invalidated and incapable of actually creating change. Because the mechanism of which to change when you have really black and white thinking or really rigid thinking is not through challenging your thoughts, right? It's through behavior change. I always like to say the thoughts will follow the behavior and the emotion will come with it. You got to prove to yourself that you can do it differently to know that you can do it differently
0: yes it makes so much sense to me so on this show we have talked about emotions behaviors and thoughts and sort of that triad and how they're all uh, interdependent i would say like if you hit one you're going to affect the other right and where i would get stuck with traditional therapy and this is not a harangue on traditional therapy at all i think cognitive behavioral therapy is absolutely amazing but it, it really speaks to me when we talk about focusing on behavior changing our Actions in order to drive new thoughts, in order to drive new emotional responses. To me, I've never I've never thought my way out of a slump, for example. Like when I get in a funk, I have never thought my way out of that. It has always required action. Another word for action, of course, is behavior. Is that is is that resonating with some of the tenets of DBT?
1: Absolutely. Yeah, totally. I mean, we actually have four areas of, we want to talk tenants, right? So DBT is split into mindfulness, distress tolerance, emotion regulation, and interpersonal effectiveness.
0: Maddie, will you say those again? Mindfulness, distress tolerance,
1: emotion regulation, and interpersonal effectiveness
0: and interpersonal effectiveness. I would love to deep dive into those sort of using real world examples if we can. We talked at the top about how this therapy can be extremely useful for PTSD, for anxiety, for personality disorders. But Maddie, I really, if it's acceptable to do so, I wanna cast a wider net because so much of what you talk about is applicable to people who are struggling to, in my mind, with the day to day who might might be doing one of the overs, overeating, overstressing, over over shopping, over drinking, or the unders of any of those (laughs) versions, right? (laughs) I want to pull, I want everyone to pull a seat up to the table as we jump into these four, what you're saying, these are the four real skills, the real, okay.
1: Skill modules is what we call them, but they're basically like skill focus areas. Okay. As a DBT therapist, I'm I use DBT with everybody, even my people who aren't in traditional DBT, so that it all makes sense to me. That's kind of the point. Anybody could use DBT.
0: Okay. Well, one of the questions that you ask and that you present as a part of the DBT framework that I found super interesting and a really interesting lens through which to view why we do what we do is you say that you often ask, what is the function of this behavior? What do you mean when you ask, what is the function of this behavior? And feel free to use any behavior as an example.
1: Okay. So what is the function of a behavior is essentially when we ask ourselves, like, what is this giving to me? What need am I meeting? What desire am I achieving by doing this thing? Whether it be changing an emotion, lowering an emotion, getting some sort of interaction with someone else, everything has a function. Every behavior has a function. Every behavior has a purpose. Nothing occurs in a vacuum, right? So, I will talk. I can use myself because I use CBT skills all the time. I have a tendency when I am anxious. If I so, I run anxious. I know that about myself. And when I am on the more anxious side, it is very possible for me to send an impulsive text, especially if I'm anxious about like a dating thing. Like I'll impulsively like check in with that person, even if I don't really have a purpose to speak to them. And so really kind of what I'm doing is giving them a test without them even knowing, and that's not really fair, and that's not really effective to me, and it's not really giving me anything in terms of regulating my own anxiety. So what am I going to do here instead? First, uh, let me actually walk through all of the skills here that I can, I'll, I'll use this as an example for all of them. So first and foremost, I have to have the mindfulness or the focused awareness to realize that I am, I am. Thinking thoughts, feeling emotions, feeling and physiological sensations that are leading me to a certain behavioral behavioral urge that is to send the text, right? So what's happening for me right now? And can I just pause for a second? Like mindfulness is really gives us like that stop sign. In fact, that's one of the DBT skills is the stop skill. Mm-hmm. But so first it's like, okay, I know that I'm sitting here. I'm anxious because... I didn't hear from so-and-so, so now I'm going to text so-and-so to see, Yeah, like, I want to, you know, I want to get some, some external validation here. So I need to know that's about to happen to me, right? So mindfulness is, we couch everything in mindfulness. There is no skillfulness without mindfulness in DBT. So then I'm going to say to myself, well, I can't make them text me without using magic. <laughs> and if I text them, I'm not necessarily acting effectively. I don't actually have a question to ask. I, I'm really just, again, like kind of creating a narrative in my mind that I'm looking to find evidence for, which will support my anxiety. So it will actually be my anxiety. So before I can work on changing the anxiety, what I need to work on is tolerating the the feeling without acting on the behavior. That's distress tolerance. Okay.
0: That is so huge. That takes so much work in my mind. And that is the distress tolerance you speak of? Right. It's essentially distress
1: tolerance is like, how do you not get in your own way again and again and again, because it's really hard to not because you need to first have behavioral control before you can actually make long lasting emotion regulation change. Right. So I have a couple of go to's for distress tolerance. It might be that I call a friend and ask them to like talk at me. Like my sister knows, like, I'm just like, you just need to distract me for five minutes. Um, and like, just talk at me. I have a really good guy friend who did that a lot for me when I was in Israel just now. So that's one option. Another option that I've talked about quite a bit on my Instagram, which some people have a kind of strong reaction to is, um, engaging in like other emotionally activating material. That's not going to be emotionally activating in the way that you are emotionally activated, right? That's not going to feed the thoughts or feelings that you're experiencing, but still like requires emotional energy. And this is why I like really enjoy World War II content. (laughs) People think it's like, (laughs) um, but I, I watched Band of Brothers like 10 times more times than like a like anyone really has and the idea of this is like it's content that's interesting to me and it's like and it's not that hard for me to concentrate on because it like evokes an emotional response for me but not one that's triggering my ineffective behavior
0: so that took a turn but you're you're changing your state you're engaging yourself deeply in some other way yeah essentially that's so smart okay
1: and it's mindfulness, right? Because I could be watching Band of Brothers, but I could be thinking about how I, I'm like, no one likes me and like, no one's texted me in so long. And like, why am I, why don't I have any dates tonight? And la, 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 la. And then my Band of Brothers is going to do nothing for me. By the way, if you haven't seen Band of Brothers, everyone needs to see Band of you
0: Brothers. You are literally, I don't, this is insane because I can't even remember what year that came out or.
1: 2001, right before 9-11, actually two days before 9-11 it premiered.
0: So it came out in 2001 and you are the second person, I am not kidding, this week who has told me to watch it. its <laughs> It'll be in the show notes. Okay.
1: <laughs> Honestly. So, so again, like what is, I can put on Band of Brothers, but again, I have to be really mindful of where my mind is going and bringing it back to the band of brothers. And the more emotionally dysregulated you are, the harder it is going to be to bring your mindful attention onto something else, right? So that is a skill in and of itself, because it is honestly easier, right? For our brains, we like to function off of familiarity, it's easier to just send the impulsive text, even if it would make me upset later on, I'd get that that like immediate lowering of the emotion in the moment. So instead, what I'm what I'm saying to myself is, no, I'm I'm gonna actually experience this emotion, but I'm not gonna just like free fall this emotion. I'm gonna, I'm going to practice doing something else mindfully or engaging with something or someone else so that I can at least have another, it gives us a behavior to replace.
0: If I am spiraling out about something, but then I get involved in a creative endeavor, like producing this podcast, I get I get completely distracted from the thing that was completely owning me five minutes ago. Yeah.
1: You're doing it with your full attention. You're fully participating as we say in DBT.
0: Okay. And so that is that leading to emotional regulation or that literally is emotional regulation?
1: Distress tolerance. So it's a great question. The idea of Distress tolerance is not to make you feel better. It's to make you act different. If it like your your whole goal is to not do the thing you normally would do, that's it. So people are like, distress tolerance, did it work? And I'm like, well, what did you, did you act on the urge, whatever that urge might be? Let's say if I'm talking to myself, right? Did I send the text? The answer is no, I still might be miserable and anxious. And at the same time, I'm I'm teaching my brain to respond to that anxiety and that misery in a different way, rather than the habitual way that I've learned. That is not for
0: Okay, what you just said is so mind blowingly true. <laughs> The, the goal is not, or I guess I shouldn't say the goal, the effective outcome is not to feel better, something that we're constantly seeking and told to constantly seek, if you don't mind my saying, it's not to feel better, but to act differently. Yes. It doesn't mean that rainbows are going to shoot out of your arse. It means that you're going to make a different choice. Exactly.
1: Yes. You're teaching your brain. That's what's called distress tolerance, which you're not actually changing the emotion. You are just, you are accepting the emotion in the moment and still at the same time being effective.
0: Okay. Outstanding. So in your scenario, and we'll put some more on the table, but in your scenario, mindfulness was your focused awareness. If you're not aware, you can't change anything. We got you. And then distress tolerance is like allowing yourself to be uncomfortable in that With that, whatever kind of
1: like, again, and and when you're in individual therapy, you think about like, what was the situation that made me feel like that? Like, what are the thoughts? Like, when did I first notice the urge to have the behavior? Right. But it's essentially creating a situation, creating another behavior for yourself instead of doing the ineffective behavior, the target behavior, the texting behavior, if it's in my case, simply tolerating the distress while practicing focusing your mind on other things that are not going to like reinforce the distress.
0: Okay. And then emotional regulation is not necessarily changing the emotion, but allowing it and surviving it. Please rephrase. <laughs> okay. So emotion regulation. So distress
1: tolerance is like a moment to moment skill, right? emotion okay. regulation are kind of like these, like what we call like, um, life worth living lifestyle changing skills. So these are the skills where it's like, you need to practice them more than once. And they serve two functions. There are two separate types of emotion regulation skills. There are skills that change or lower an emotion in a moment. So that's opposite action and problem solving. So that's like, um, I really want to work on social anxiety. I don't have social anxiety, but if I were a person who wanted to work on social anxiety, uh, so I would have to learn opposite action to social anxiety, right? So my anxiety makes me not want to go to parties. I would be, you know, my therapist might assign me to go to like one social thing per week. And when I'm there, like my phone needs to be in my pocket for 30 minutes. And that's kind of like emotional exposure that will change the emotion in the moment and over time. So we have changing the emotion in the moment or regulating lowering the intensity. And we also have the experience of actually raising our emotional baseline so that we're less vulnerable to extreme ups and downs, right? So this is not the like, life is always great. This is the, well, when life, when like life things happen, how do I put myself in a position by the, by practicing certain emotion regulation lifestyle skills so that it doesn't actually hit me as hard because I've actually created a cushion in my brain.
0: This, this makes a lot of sense to me. Mindfulness and distress tolerance are moment-to-moment, I'm going to call them micro skills, not because the skills are small, but because they're needed in micro, micro circumstances. You're saying emotional regulation comes in time. That's what happens when you do the work. That's what happens when you evolve. And that's at a macro level, you are raising your emotional baseline so that you're not, for example, so darn reactive. Correct. Okay, I have a, one thing that I lost in your explanation that I just want to capture. And you were giving some examples of how to build distress tolerance. And one was opposite action, which is very much what I think of when I think of CBT. What was the other one that you said there was another there's another bullet there, if you will.
1: Problem solving. Problem, Problem
0: solving. solving. okay, we'll we'll save that for the anecdotes. Uh, we'll We'll get into some specifics before we jump into that, but thank you for giving me that. So on a macro level we were at emotional regulation. Is interpersonal effectiveness also going to be on the macro level?
1: Yes, it, these things take practice to be able to like learn the new behavior.
0: Sure. sure.
1: and you need to like use them in the moment. Exactly. Okay. Same with emotion regulation. It's just that you're not getting like the function. The point of the skill is to be used over and over again. It's to le- it's learning new behavior, as opposed to just stopping another behavior.
0: Yes, it sounds like a new state of being. Tell me what interpersonal effectiveness is in DBT.
1: Sure. So interpersonal effectiveness is basically the set of skills that helps us be the version of ourselves that's that like reflects our values in relationships. And those are any relationships. I'm not just talking about like partner relationships, friend relationships, work relationships, like like, your mailman, like it doesn't matter. Interpersonal interactions, right? So be the person that, that is reflective of our values. So act in that way and also get what we want or need from our relationships so that they are balanced. And again, reflecting our values. It's how to improve our interactions with other humans. Essentially. Okay,
0: so you were vulnerable and shared with us that sometimes you do an anxiety text. So I am going to put one of mine on the table and I want to use this framework to talk about it if that's cool with you.
1: Hey, love that. We call this like, it's what we do in skills group. People bring in their examples and we like workshop them. That's how we learn. This is fabulous.
0: Okay. Outstanding. And I, and then I have three, three listener examples, but mine is I am in a state, meaning like um place in my life where I need to be in deep creative work right now. And I have built the space for it. I have built the capacity for it. And guess what I'm doing? Instead of creating, I'm consuming. So that used to be binge eating. And my listeners know that anyone who's listened to the archives knows that that used to be binge eating. And that is that is a long dead issue for me, I'm happy to report. But I'm only realizing as I'm saying these words to you, I'm only connecting the dots on the pattern here. Now, my consumption is in the form of other resources, other people's materials. So a very practical example, Maddie, is I'm in this space where I've created a space for myself to build this business. And I used to be swamped with my other work as a consultant. Okay. So now I'm in the space. And what am I doing with that capacity? I am spending it consuming other people's content. So I might listen to six podcasts a day. Six, Maddie, six podcasts a day. (laughs) And you know what I'm not doing? I'm not producing. So that is something and I am aware enough to know that I'm doing it. Only just recently did I sort of admit to myself I was doing that. And I have got to stop, but it's easier. So I haven't stopped.
1: So do you want me to DBT you right now?
0: I want you to, I want you to DBT me or I want you to Maddie me right now.
1: Okay. Good luck. So, <laughs> okay. So, so when you think about producing or creating or like being in that creative state, what thoughts come up for you? Like, what's the first thing you think about of like the, like, what's the thing that's pushing you away? What's the threat? If you
0: will. I can't do it to the level that I want to do it. In other words, I'll fail.
1: Okay. Right. I won't be able to do it good enough. Like it won't be good enough. And so, so what emotion is that? Do you
0: think? I mean, I know it's fear. It probably wears a couple of different outfits, Um, but at the end of the day, it's fear.
1: Yeah, I would say like anxiety is the overarching thing. We could maybe argue a little bit of shame, like thinking that you're not doing, you're not good enough, but I really think anxiety is the emotion that we're dealing with here. The natural reaction to anxiety is to withdraw, like to hide from the thing that's making us uncomfortable. That is like a anthropological learned thing since the beginning of humans, okay?
0: I am a 100% doing that.
1: <laughs> okay, great. Like, that's fine. That, that's like what you should be doing, here, right? Like, it's like, that's what your brain is going to tell you to do because it's protective. What we say is when we experience anxiety, what we want to do if we are safe right if there's a tiger in the room run but as long as you are safe we want to unlearn that connection between this thing and like threat or like fear of death basically anxiety at a certain level like it it all it comes from is like the fear that you are going to be harmed so obviously failing isn't actually bodily harm but your body your body doesn't know that So I asked you what the function, like, what, what is this doing for you? Because you want to understand that your thought is I'm not like the the anxiety thought is I'm going to fuck this up. Like I'm going to mess this up or I'm not going to be able to complete it. And so the automatic reaction is I'm just going to run away from it. Like maybe I'll be able to do it later.
0: Future me will nail this. (laughs) Yeah.
1: hundred percent. By the way, like future, you probably would nail it. And at the same time, current, you would also nail it, right? Mm -hmm. And so like, and this is just classic when we have like a million emails, you know, it's anything where we get overwhelmed. It usually means like we feel like we can't take care of everything and then we run away from it. Okay. Like traditionally, if I were to say to you, right, like what we have to do here is create an action plan, right? That you're going to commit to using a couple of different skills that you're, where you're going to say, I'm going to start doing the creative thing at a certain time every day. You're going to set a timer on your phone. And this way, regardless of whether or not you're anxious, you're practicing engaging in the thing mindfully. You're exposing yourself to it. This is what opposite action is, right? You're exposing yourself to the feeling of anxiety and engaging with the thing anyway. You're also doing emotion regulation because you are working, you have a goal and you're taking like piecewise steps to meet that goal effectively. Otherwise, when we have a goal, but we don't actually break it down enough to get to it, that makes us feel worse. But every time we do a thing that takes us closer to the goal that we have, like the challenge that we're experiencing, we actually get a ton of emotional benefit from that. Like that feeling of pride, self-efficacy is a lot of times associated with like feeling happy. Like the idea that you know that you can do what you're setting out to doing. So you have to start off by just saying like, I just have to do this. So I'm going to like, as if I'm going to be charged if I don't do this for 20 minutes every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday at 11 a.m., I'm I'm just going to do it. But essentially it's in life it's like I would be like let's come up with a plan, let's choose days, let's choose activities, let's choose an amount of time and I also want you to like text me the evidence that you did it.
0: I have probably 6 friends right now in my circle who want to write a book, who have started writing a book and haven't finished writing a book or they're somewhere on the spectrum of book writing, okay? And it sounds like what you're sharing with me works on any initiative that you want to be, like you are called to do it and you just can't do it. So breaking it into smaller goals, setting those goals, actually taking the action. And also I think something that you're saying that's really critical is having some place to share accountability.
1: Like, I like that just because that way you, like, can't say you forgot or you didn't get at, you, like, you, you can't let yourself out of it. But I also will point out that you said the word can't, and I like to say that can't is a fear word because most of the time we actually can do the thing that we're talking about. It's So can't usually represents, I don't think, I, I don't know if I'm going to be able to do it right or, like, I'm afraid to do it, essentially.
0: Okay, very, very good.
1: <laughs> you can do the thing. You're just, you don't want to experience the feeling of maybe not doing it the way you think it should be
0: okay amen okay so let me give you another anecdote i have a friend who is a workaholic she would she would call herself that i'm not assigning that to her um but she has shelved everything else in her life like everything down to not being able to go for a walk 10 minutes a day so she really wants to start the habit of walking 10 minutes a day and she's been saying that for two years (laughs) okay okay I believe that there is, when you say, what is the function of this behavior? I believe that the function of this behavior, and it's not my, I'm, I'm, I'm doing this for the, for anecdotal purposes, but obviously it's not my role to sit back and judge her. But I think it's just an example that everyone can relate to. I think the function of that behavior is by not doing so, by not taking even like a modicum's worth of care of her, of herself. It is doing something for her. And I think that's the question that would be worth sitting with. What would you add to that? Or how would you, how would you redirect me or her?
1: Right. So when people, when we, when we do things that ultimately like don't, we don't want to be doing, we know that like at some juncture, it's going to make us feel bad, like sending the ineffective text or not going on the walk when you said you're going to, What's the function of that, right? Again, the question comes back to what, what are you getting out of that? Because we don't do anything where we don't get something out of it. And so what, what your friend is getting out of that is not experiencing the discomfort of having to do the thing that she's trying to do and hasn't yet been able to do. That's what she's getting out of it. That's what's maintaining the avoidance behavior. Avoidance is one of the strongest behavioral, like it's, it's so self-reinforcing because the the emotion goes away the second we take away the stimuli. So if it's like the stimulus is walking, then once it's like, oh, I'm not going to go my walk, there's no, there's no emotion there anymore.
0: Okay, I want to I want to dive into that the emotion goes away when we take away the stimuli is that am I saying that correctly? Okay, can you apply that to this example? Another girlfriend might she she doesn't have a drinking problem in the traditional sense. Again, I'm speaking for this person. But when she goes out socially, and she wants to have one drink, she invariably has three and says I don't need three. I don't want three. I only want one. And then 99% of the time, it's three. By the way, these are all listener questions. I'm acting like they're all my best friends because Wait, we have a parasocial relationship. So <laughs> okay. So can you talk to me? I have a question about short-term versus long-term thinking, but can we start with the emotion and stimuli relationship there? Because I think it's such a like practical example.
1: This is a really good Example. Um, and I talk to mindful. I talk about mindful drinking with so many patients. And it has nothing to do necessarily with feeling out of control. It just be, it has to do more with being aware and like you know holding on to the limit that you're setting for yourself. That's what I would say. I do that with myself all the time with lots of different things. Well, let's take the drinking example, right? So if we're talking about like what function does that serve? So we can also do also do ineffective things that are like in the service of like a lot of fun. You know, like you can also reinforce the feeling of fun with an ineffective behavior, right? You can say, I want to have one drink and then everyone else is having another drink. So you say, I'm going to have two drinks and then you have three and four drinks because you're like, I'm having so much fun. OK, so this is the variable, right? If we're going to get like researchy for a second, this alcohol is the variable that's increasing my fun. That's the perceived notion. That's what your brain is learning there, right? So so what you kind of what again, what you want to do is you want to create a plan. In DBT, we call, we talk about coping, uh, coping ahead. This is an emotion regulation skill, coping ahead. Sorry to interrupt you. Did you say coping ahead? It's like the idea of planning for the worst and hoping for the best, right? You're not going to assume that everything is going to go to shit, but just in case it does, you have like an A, B and a C plan. Okay. So if I was a person or when I am a person who I'm like, I just don't really want to drink tonight. Like, I don't want to, I just like, don't want to, like, it's not, I'm not in the vibe for that right now. Like, so what I might do is like, I will specifically say to the person that I'm with, like, right when I get there, like, oh, FYI, I'm not drinking tonight. Like, just so you know, I'm going to, I'm going to grab a Diet Coke. So I'm like already putting it out there for the person or, and, or if it's like a close friend of mine, I'll just text them before and be like, oh, I'm not drinking tonight. So like, if I try to order a martini, like call me out. Now, again, we all have free will. Like we can all still do what we want, but again, it's, it's that accountability piece. And it's also in certain scenarios, like don't order the bottle of wine. If your friend is like, should we get a bottle? Then the answer needs to be no. And that's where you take the stimulus away so that you no longer feel the emotion. So like it will be a lot easier to not drink if you don't have it right in front of you accessible, right? So it's creating systems, creating an environment where we're containing and maintaining for the stimulus that's going to make us dysregulated.
0: What is so challenging about this, though, is that people basically say, you know, in so many words, if I could pattern interrupt myself and distract myself, then I would like my whole problem is that I'm going with my short term impulses versus my long term rewards. And you can talk about this when it comes to personal financial management, you know, and overspending or undersaving. You could talk about this in relationships, obviously, in drinking and eating. But I love using these like super simple examples because they're so relatable. So, in the same example, if someone says, "Yeah, but Maddie, like that's my whole problem. My short-term impulse is so much sexier than the long-term reward of not doing something." That's a, that's not incorrect. There's nothing that I'm
1: going to say. Like, obviously, the thing that you're doing is giving you something; otherwise, you wouldn't keep doing it. The, it. Everything we do does something for us. The question is, like, is it working for you? Is it working for you in the long term? Right. Yeah, I know. It's annoying to have to think in the long-term. It's asking us to think about our long-term goals. So no, you're not always going to be able to get that short-term immediate release if you are trying to maintain a long-term goal. And if that goal is just practicing holding your limits, whatever those might be, then you just need to do that in the moment. And that's what we're going to plan for that. We're going to figure out all the things. We're going to troubleshoot all the potential things that could get in the way of you holding your limit so that you can't really say you didn't have a way to do it. Now, sometimes we just don't do the thing. That's okay. These are behaviors that are learned over time. But this is what I mean by plan uh, plan for the worst, hope for the best.
0: And we should say at the end of the day, if someone is struggling with something time and time and time again, that is the perfect example for when DBT intervention can be useful, right? So to the, to the listener who's joined us in this conversation, they're like, I wanted this to be fixed by the end of this podcast. (laughs) Like part of the point is some of these patterns are so deeply ingrained. Like I'll, I'll put myself up on the chopping block again. Well, that was violent. I'll put myself up as the example again. In my example, like a very simple first step for me would be to ha- create my own accountability system in the scenario that I described to you.
1: Yeah, no, exactly. Right, that's setting up a plan. That's coping ahead, right? So I'm gonna say to my friend that I'm not drinking. I'm going to, you know, go into the bathroom and do 10 jumping jacks just to kind of like change my heart rate. I'm gonna splash cold water on my face and do like a modified tip skill. Whatever it is you need to do, insert whatever. Distress tolerance, you need to do in order to not act on the urge. Because just not acting on the urge is is a huge part of behavior change and, and emotion regulation. Like you said, like you like I said, you can't change, can really moderate your emotions if you're if you feel behaviorally out of control.
0: Okay. And I just want to repeat that you are not promising that people will feel better or feel dandy about it. You're saying that if this process is followed, then the goal is to act differently.
1: Yes. And, right. There's always an and in DBT. Uh, We say and and not but because we it's dialectical. You know, there's two two ways to look at something at any given time. So yes. And the thing is, is that when we think about the skill of building mastery, which is, like I said, you set a goal that's challenging, but still attainable. And then you create steps. You create your steps for yourself to get to that goal. Right. So if your goal is, I want to practice setting limits for myself and holding them, then actually it will regulate your emotions a little bit like after the fact, or like it will give you that like emotional cushion. It will build your baseline. If you come home and you're like, oh, like I kind of felt like a loser or whatever judgment you're going to use for like not drinking, or like, I feel like maybe I could have had more fun, which you don't even know is true. And at the same time, like I actually did the thing I was going to do, right? So that feeling that you can do a thing is so important because if you can do one thing, then you can do another thing. And that's how you build new behavior.
0: I always say nothing is more motivating than witnessing your own progress.
1: Exactly. Exactly. Yes.
0: Okay. Two more questions. You touched on the and, but phenomenon. Can you just share with us why that is one of your sort of critical principles, what you mean and why we should be following along?
1: (laughs) hundred percent. Language is a behavior. The way we talk is a behavior. What I want to do is I want to practice thinking dialectically. I want to practice thinking about the fact that there can be two realities at the same time that can be seemingly in opposition and still true. They can both be true. So what does that look like? That looks like, L. I loved being on the show. Like, this was so great. And at the same time, I feel like the timing, I, I wasn't super clear about the timing. And so that's on me. Maybe next time you can let me know how much time needs to be blocked out. And that way it will be a little more effective and feel a little less rushed.
0: Can you just say for the record that that's a hypothetical example?
1: <laughs> <laughs> my tact for creating examples in the moment is so poor. Like it's just poor.
0: (laughs) Maddie, you should hear me try to do metaphors live. It never goes well. Okay. So I'm very relatable. Okay. So anything after a, but erases all that preceded it. Is that a fair shake? Yeah. It's not thinking dialectically. Like it's just not, it's like
1: that thing can be true. And the other thing can be true. Like, so why don't we speak like that? And it's really important when we're like talking about situations where we tend to be black and white in our thinking or all or nothing or, you know, idealizing versus devaluing. Like this is it's really important. And at the same time, we want to kind of practice doing it all the time so that we can generalize that, like get used to the idea of these two things existing at once and it not being if or.
0: I mean, in personal conflict, on a macro level, culturally, imagine if we stopped using the word but and started allowing that two things can be true, two experiences can be true at the same time. That's
1: the experience of validation, which is so important, being able to see someone's side without necessarily
0: agreeing with it that in itself could be an entire show. Maddie, last question for you. And this is really about other people. So, you know, the, the folks who are joining us today, like they're interested in personal development, they are interested in their own growth, they're interested in being accountable in order to get there. And one of the things that we struggle with is wanting to want other people in our lives to want the same things that we do. So here's my question. I had a listener say, you know, I'm close with my sister, but she really lives like a hermit, which is fine if she loved that, if she loved isolation and she liked being alone, but she talks incessantly about how lonely she is and how she's never doing anything. And she does a heavy sigh when she finds out that I'm doing something fun, you know, and has this, oh, if only attitude and like the world is there for her. So she's describing the scenario. Does Sister A have any influence in this situation? Does she have anything she can do? And broadly speaking, what happens when we try to get other people to change? Like, is that a fool's errand?
1: Ah, okay, so two separate questions. So kind of the same thing. So in interpersonal, what is the goal of interpersonal effectiveness? Any interpersonal effectiveness skill is to walk away from a scenario, a conversation, a whatever it might be, feeling like you were the most effective version of yourself, okay? Okay. What is not included in that is making someone, getting someone to do the thing you want them to do. That is an added bonus. That is fantastic. And obviously if you are being skillful and effective, the likelihood that somebody will go along with what you're asking for, or kind of be able to acknowledge your limit that you're setting for yourself or whatever it is, is going to be higher. Like, yeah, obviously if you're not like screaming like a banshee or like hysterically crying. If you aren't doing those things, someone's more likely to hear your message. And at the same time, and that that is not our goal. We cannot control what someone else does. You could literally be Mother Teresa, and that doesn't mean that you're going to make somebody else like do the thing you want to do. So ultimately, it's about you know, did I do the thing that I wanted to do in the way that is reflective of my values? Can I walk away from that and say, okay, that was hard, maybe, and I still I'm okay with the way I was.
0: Do you coach people in your practice who want to change their spouses?
1: We all want to change people in our lives. I like, like honestly, like take a number in my life. <laughs> like, yeah, we all want to change people in our lives for sure. Of
0: Very course. human tendency. At the end of the day, am I hearing you correctly when you say? you can work on yourself, you can change yourself. But when it comes to other people, your very best option is to be the very best version of you. I mean, I don't I don't I again, I'm oversimplifying, but I'm just trying to create some sort of peace around something that I know drives millions of people insane.
1: Yeah. So it's like, well, it's two things. It's also and this this was the other piece of the answer that I was going to give you. It's also like, we cannot expect people to read our minds. So part of being effective is asking for what we want or sharing a thought, like giving feedback and at the same time accepting with like the full mindfulness and awareness that someone might have a reaction to that and their reaction is not invalid and your and like your concern or your value or your whatever is not invalid right so in the case of this person who's like who really doesn't understand why their sister is like not doing stuff like you know well the first thing i would ask that person is like well have you ever had a conversation with her about this like what does that sounded like you know like and is there a way for you to give this feedback while still being validating trying to understand what the truth is in her side right so uh, again, I'm going to pull something out of my thought that's going to make no sense. Maybe this person just got divorced, okay? You know, maybe they just got divorced. So I know that like, you know, you're still kind of like rebounding from, you know, the the divorce and like trying to find your way in terms of like friends and and, you know, going out versus taking care of yourself and like kind of learning this whole new routine. And at the same time, I really feel like you're doing yourself a disservice. And I don't, I'm not saying that in a judgmental way. I'm like looking at you and I'm saying, I really feel like you're doing yourself a disservice because you're not putting yourself out there. And so you're just like sending yourself the message that you can't do it or that you're not likable or people will not connect to you because you're not actually trying. And I would feel guilty as your sister not saying that to you. Now, she might scream at you and hate that. And that's, you have to accept that. You want to give feedback in a non judgmental, validating way. And someone still might have a reaction to it. But if it's really important to you, then you need to give the feedback. And that's you being effective.
0: Okay, I know we're just scratching the surface and leaving people wanting more. But let me ask you this. First of all, what does dialectical mean? Never asked you. Dia means two. What does dialectical mean?
1: Two truths can occur at the same time in opposition and neither one is more true than the other.
0: Two truths can exist at the same time. What a concept. Maddie, this is such a good 101. Where do you where do you encourage people to start if you have tickled something in them and they want to learn more about DBT?
1: Find a therapist who has experience in DBT, anybody who has good DBT training, they will use and with you. They will say could instead of should. They will talk about catching your judgments. They will practice being dialectical. You will learn validation, right? I'm sure there are like some things on the internet. I am very wary of the internet. Um, I don't like when people become their own like little experts on a subject that they're not an expert on. So I always say like, ask other people, listen to
0: other podcasts maybe that have to do with DBT. I have a great first step, and that is to follow Maddie Elberger at Millennial Mindfulness Doc on Instagram. She does great reels. It's just really, really good content. So I'm going to offer that as a baby step number one. And
1: if you're located in New York or Florida, we are currently taking new patients. My associate therapists are fabulous and amazing. I'm training all of them, and I would put anyone's life in their hands. So you'll get good DBT from them if you're in New York or Florida.
0: Maddie, thank you for everything that you do. And thank you for talking to us today.
1: Pleasure. Thanks for having me on.
0: Okay, that's a wrap. I hope you enjoyed today's show and got something out of it that you can use. If you did and you want to learn more, find me on Instagram at with Ella, or get the show notes and links at OnAirElla.com. There's no with. It's just OnAirElla.com. Thanks for listening. Thank you for sharing the show. And thanks for inspiring me. You are quite simply awesome.